The last section, the fourth section of the Satipatthana, Four Foundations of Mindfulness, is a curious Pali word, Dhammadupasana, and it has to do with, it's often translated as uh, reflections on Dhamma objects, or mind objects even, sometimes. None of which ever made sense to me, so I retranslated that as Dhamma categories. And I spent a good deal of time, perhaps even whole retreats, talking about the subjects in this last category. And this is a very loaded category. So it has what I call drop-down menus, and they're numerical. And that's also a clue to the fact that monks were memorizing this, and the, in fact, all of the course, the entire Pali Canon, all the materials in it were kept in memory. And so that's some of the reasons for the repetitions, the overlaps, and the formulas. The nature of the language of the Pali Canon, it's convenient for uh, memory, and also for rehearsals. How do we keep it in memory? Groups get together and recite the material, or perhaps we say chant the material. And you'll see this to this day amongst uh, spending quite a bit of time chanting in groups. But that is not necessarily that the Buddha spoke that way, uh, but he did was a good teacher, and that was the standard practice of the time to, to give these numerical uh, memory structures. And so we have a whole category of the Pali Canon called the numbered sayings, and then things linked by themes, connected sayings, longer-length sayings, middle-length sayings, and then a whole anthologies of, of smaller sayings. The Dhammapada, for instance, is an anthology of uh, short sayings that monks collected, kind of the Reader's Digest version of uh, Buddhism. So the, the Mahasatipatthana is the uh, 22nd sutta in the longer-length sayings, the Diga Nikaya. And these uh, suttas are compilations, probably. If you're a person who goes and memorizes with a certain group of monks, they may retain the longer-length sayings. And so part of this is structure, and one should not get carried away with too much literalism about these things. These things are to be unpacked and, and reflected on and meditated on, and also to put, be put in your own language how you wish, instead of too many uh, rigid sort of uh, ideas about language, you have to understand what is being said here. So the first category of Dhamma categories uh, is the five hindrances. I just want to go through briefly what is contained in this. And it's the five hindrances and then the five khandhas, the five uh, aspects which comprise a, a human, kind of a, a nice handful of ways of looking at the entirety of a, of a being, a human being. Then 
six, the six uh, objects of sense and the six sense consciousness, then seven factors of awakening, then, not surprisingly, the Eightfold Path or the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So there you see some clear evidence of, of uh, numerical uh, memory structures. Five, five, six, seven, eight. I tend to focus, uh, I think the most basic version of this sutta, the last section of this sutta, would be simply two things, five hindrances uh, and the seven factors of enlightenment. The other elements, the five khandas, the six uh, sense bases and their objects and the eightfold path, I mean, Really, the Eightfold Path is suddenly packed into the seventh factor of the Eightfold Path. Uh, that why so? It's a very contorted, reflective kind of structure, recursive kind of structure. It reflects on itself. It goes round and round in circles. The Eightfold Path is in the seventh factor. The seventh factor is in the Eightfold Path. Around, around you go. So. When you look at this, if you want the pared-down version, which is very useful, you just stay with the five hindrances, which are something that you should be absolutely thoroughly acquainted with. And this has to be at the tip of your fingers. This is not something that you need to get the, to type into Google uh, to figure out what's going on. This, is, this stuff is with you all the time. You have to be extremely aware of it and up on it, and you have to know all about each of these hindrances. Because these hindrances are in contradiction to these seven factors of awakening. These two things are, the seven factors are going to replace the hindrances. The hindrances are in, in contradiction, they're in opposition to the seven factors of awakening. So this needs to be reflected on, and you need to really know these seven factors inside out as well. And so this uh, course, you know, I'm, I'm going to give you some overviews of this, but this is something you would uh, consider again and again. Now, I've given whole retreats just on the seven factors of awakening. But whenever you talk about uh, the seven factors, you have to talk about what they aren't as well as what they are, and so the five hindrances come up. So the five hindrances are irritants, or psychic irritants, or psychic problems. Uh, they're more or less the explicit experience of suffering. The deeper roots of those hindrances are called the samyojanas, the roots the the chains, the bonds of uh, that are latent in the human personality, and it's out of this latent source that these explicit moments rise. So anger is always latent in a person. So people are not angry all the time, but they have a latent tendency to it. If they haven't uprooted and addressed that deep. Uh, samyojana. Yojana has a kind of a similar to yoke or uh, 
kind of a, a collar or a restricted restriction. So you, you come to you. At, this is kind of a rope within you that when you come to the end of it, you you feel it jerk you back. So you, just a matter of time, roaming around in the atmosphere of reality until you come to the end of your rope. And we have this saying in English as well: "You come to the I've come to the end of my rope." So the situation, the circumstances that you perceive in reality um, tell you that you are unable to deal with it any other way than through anger or perhaps uh, despair. So this, uh, this needs to be undone, and one of the ways to undo it is not just by deep insight into the problematic nature of anger, you are ultimately released by insight, but the process of getting to the point where you can dissolve this, this fetter, this rope, this chain, this yojana, is gradual. So you do it by attrition. You slowly, uh, each fiber of the rope is weakened. So the process, how do you weaken the hindrances? One way is by deactivating them as much as possible. The less they're used, the less they will have a tendency to keep their strength. So uh, by not using them, they tend to weaken. And so every time, and this is something you can do every day, is like, well, if I could go, say, one hour without any the slightest bit of anger and so forth that could, that's a project that i could probably take on in a whole lifetime without ever being irritated or angry or anything like this is quite a project but you can do it an hour at a time you can also do this with uh the other side of the coin the, the greed aspect desire aspect so even uh, for 10 minutes some people of course are plagued by this all the time they're, all, they're constantly in a state of uh hostility and anger and irritability, and others are in a state of delirious desire all the time. And people don't, uh, if they haven't heard this teaching then they are, or and agreed with the teaching, then they don't know any other alternative. Because this, this is very natural to the human mind. This is something nature has bequeathed you, greed and hostility. These are motivations for dealing with the world, but they're not the motivations which uh, the higher, more developed type of human functions under. So you'll see this also in um, in uh, philosophy, Greek philosophy and so forth. There's an advocacy of rising above these primitive uh, kind of drives and that you're not really a developed and uh, admirable person until you can overcome your own reactions, your own uh, captivity by emotions and impulses of anger and greed. So a person who, who has no control over this uh, quickly ends up in jail or cast out of society in some way or another. Because uh, when people act on this, they, they do irrational things, they destroy, they step over the boundaries, which we call the laws. And uh, and, of course, manners, etc. So you are destined for exclusion from mainstream society if you are um, unable to control your 
angry impulses and your greed impulses. So then the ordinary person is somewhere in the middle where they have enough control to stay within the, the bounds, but they don't, uh, usually people don't pretend to be without the emotion, but they are constrained by it enough that they won't step across boundaries regarding other people's well-being and so, so into violence and, and theft and things like this. So the roots of, uh, of the five precepts, the, the sort of virtue precepts, the moral precepts of not killing, not stealing, no sexual misconduct, false speech and full awareness, and then use of intoxicants. The roots of those are the inability to control one's uh, primary drives, and the primary drives are just greed and hatred. Those are the first two of the five hindrances. And so this is uh, mindfulness is being brought to bear on this. So mindfulness is to recognize things. Reports from, so remember this, the mindfulness is the sentry and it looks out, uh, attends to the gate. And through the sense experience, through sight, sound, smells, tastes, touches, and ideas, one perceives, has a distorted perception, misinformation and disinformation about the the kingdom. And the kingdom is is reality, external reality. The information about external reality is conveyed to you through the senses. And there's misinformation and disinformation. And uh, the sentry is is asked to interrogate uh, any kind of uh, reports about the kingdom. Now, this may sound... It's it's interesting. I mean, it, it makes sense. But it's unbelievably close to how reality works. Right now... In the uh, pandemic, so I want to stay very timely with this. By the way, if this retreat is seen 30 years from now, they'll be wondering, what, what is he talking about? What pandemic? <laughs> anyway, you know what I'm talking about. Right now, there are endless, uh, there's endless misinformation and disinformation. Where does this thing come from? Uh, is it, was it released from some secret lab in China, or is it just a, a, a bat uh, dropping or something like this. Uh, there's all kinds of distorted information, which if that information is not treated properly, uh, then uh, huge consequences can occur. And this is how wars start. Uh, I don't need to remind most of you about the what was called the weapons of mass destruction, <laughs> which some sort of fantasy... <laughs> Fantasy weapons of mass destruction were supposed to be in the Middle East and the American army went in to get the weapons of mass destruction because the messengers, (laughs) the sentry, (laughs) the informed intelligent sentry, I think you call it the CIA, (laughs) the CIA had, had misinformation and disinformation and they presented it and then a response was taken up, but it was it was just wrong. 
So this is, you're in the position, your, your mindfulness has to be, is a form of CIA, a central intelligence agency. You have a central intelligence agency who's supposed to be monitoring for the reality of the world. And if you do not get good information from it, bad things happen, wars start, crazy things happen. All kinds of uh, criminal cases, justice cases, and all kinds of social injustice in history has been uh, committed because of uh, distortion of information. So what is the primary distortion of information? And it's that the anger element has an unwise attention to the fault. And so the, there is anger generated the greed element has unwise attention to the beautiful, and so possession and desire is generated. So this is something also to be highly aware of. Now, in a previous talk, I talked about what is the accompanying feeling of anger. The accompanying feeling of anger is unpleasant. It doesn't arise, anger doesn't arise except with an unpleasant feeling. Greed arises both with unpleasant feeling and with pleasant feeling. This, that's information that you really need to reflect on and say, well, why would I want to inflict an unpleasant feeling on myself? And people, basically, unless they have contemplated the nature of anger and the feeling accompanying anger, they, they are not even aware of it. They've been in and out of anger their whole life, and you can't, you, they still don't know whether it feels good or not. So they haven't really, like, what does it feel like? What does desire feel like? And then secondly, this other element, what, uh, what is the cause? What, how does anger arise? So the Buddha is brilliant in, in say, giving you something simple, and it is that you are attending unwisely to the fault. So you, you, you don't, when things are just fine, you're not angry. It's because your attention latches on to the fault, to the exclusion of the whole picture, and the forgetfulness of the nature of this, this magnification of the fault, uh, is, is the cause for the arising of this anger. What is the cure for the arising of the anger? Wise attention to the fault. By the way, so it's not that we, if you're uh, free of these hindrances, it's not that you're unaware of the faults of the world. We're not, they talk about looking at it through rose-colored glasses, everything's fine and so forth. The Buddha is the last person to say everything's fine. He says everything isn't fine and it never will be fine. It's, in fact, loaded with problems and faults, and that's why suffering is intrinsic to existence. However, it is how you attend to these faults. So we're in the midst of a pandemic. (laughs) How will you attend to it? Is this something, is this a cause for despair? Is this a cause for um, frustration? Is this a cause for hostility? I mean, uh, people channel it in all kinds of ways, like, who started this? <laughs> I'm going to get them. Maybe it's a, 
it's a hoax that uh, somebody we can manipulate somebody. We're all being manipulated. This kind of uh, unwise attention to it and the following up with some negative kind of emotions is the wrong way to look at it. It's, it certainly is a is a worldwide disease uh, going around. Can you be at ease? Should you be at ease in the midst of it? Yes. And this is called Yoniso Manasikara. Yoniso as that which goes to the root, and Manasikara is the mind doings. And this is the essential uh, critical faculty which, without which you cannot attain enlightenment. This is the, the most important internal uh, element. There's one internal element which is critical and one external element which is extremely important. The internal element is the capacity for wise reflection, yoniso manasikara. Can you look upon the world and yourself and reality with wisdom? Can you see its true nature? Can you see its flowing, fluctuating, transparent, insubstantial nature? And can you retain that vision? Can you hold that vision? Can you remember that vision? That's the single most important internal uh, capacity. And the external capacity is a, uh, a kalyana mitta, a wise friend. Who is this wise friend? For instance, the, the, mo- the preeminent wise friend is the Buddha himself. So this is the ultimate kalyana, meaning beautiful, uh, mitta, friend, mitta and metta. Are, are related words. Mitta is friend and metta is uh, loving kindness. So this, uh, this external agent, the, the wise friend, why are they wise? Why are they beautiful? Because they have yoniso manasikara. They have the internal element of wisdom, the capacity to hear dhamma, Dhamma being just uh, the optimal way of regarding human existence. It's a very practical side of teaching. It's not merely like uh, science, physics, and so forth. Physics is not biased in in what it studies. It it studies everything and attempts to get uh, accurate accounts of of the nature of reality. But the Buddha is saying... uh, Actually, there's some sort of priorities in, in the knowledge structures that you have, what, what you're going to invest your time in and what you're going to invest your intellect in. And physics is not the best investment. You don't get the best return on your investment by studying physics or chemistry or any of these things. These are the, uh, even the practical arts or making money or so. These, these are not, not illegitimate things. It's just that you, you don't seem to have something called priorities. And the priority structure, the hierarchy of priorities, is that at the very top is the nature of human suffering, Why the roots of human suffering. That is the priority, and all of your intelligence and your skill and your capacity should be 
prioritize that. Everything else is is secondary. You, you need your livelihoods. You can, it's, it's all right. You can be a physicist, but <laughs> uh, understand that it it really is not going to solve the the essence of uh, suffering. So this is uh, the capacity for wise reflection and uh, to see the faults in the world with wisdom and then anger doesn't arise with it. You have lucid capacity to see uh, there's all kinds of political shenanigans and uh, social injustice and all kinds of um, folly and uh, treachery, all these things. The, The Buddha is fully aware of these, and all wise people should be fully aware of these things. But it's how you look at them and the emotion that, that accompanies it. So you see it in a larger picture. You see basically the roots of this kind of evil and problematic behavior, the cruelty, etc. in the world. The roots of it is just ignorance. So once you understand, well, people do this because they don't know any better. So this is uh, a way of looking at things without uh, in igniting this this hindrance of uh, anger. Anger, if you recall from a previous talk, is a great stain on the personality, uh, but may be easier than greed to get rid of. Greed is another of. Uh, is caused also by unwise attention to the beautiful. And uh, so you see, uh, in, a, in a deceptive way, you see what is intrinsically impermanent as permanent. This investment in, in things is that you forget the transient nature of things. It's quite appealing, it's quite beautiful, but something has been forgotten is that it's intrinsically going to uh, evaporate on you, dissolve on you. So this is a, it's like you are a raccoon, and uh, raccoons are very interesting little creatures. They have very human-like hands, very interesting. And they wash, they like to wash their food. So they get, get some, I guess they've learned that sand and so forth uh, erodes your teeth. Somehow in evolution they've managed to learn to wash their food. But this, uh, if you give them a sugar cube, they will tend to go and wash the sugar cube. And then they don't have any... F- where's the match? Where's the food? It's gone. If you give them another sh- sugar cube, they wash it again. <laughs> so this is... Uh, we're a bit like raccoons. Uh, having been given a sugar cube, we have forgotten the, the transient nature. It's not substantial. It won't last... It won't outlast the washing. This is true about all things, all levels of uh, beautiful experience. And this is why we're, uh, as I presume that the, the, the raccoon is actually quite disappointed to find out that the sugar cube is gone, and we are also uh, disappointed when the sugar cube is gone, when, the, when our house is gone, <laughs> when our health is gone, <laughs> when our car is gone, <laughs> when our money is gone, when anything, all of the stuff that we thought was desirable and beautiful is gone, are we disappointed? Are we shocked? Are we confused? Uh, Why would we be? You didn't know that? You didn't know that things are impermanent? 
So this is wisdom, the application of wisdom to the beautiful, is that one sees it. It's not that you cannot see. The Buddha himself had uh, good taste. (laughs) He had excellent eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. He had all of the uh, sensory apparatus was intact. He also had a very good, subtle sense of what was uh, thought by the world, as he, he would say, so that the world considers that beautiful. The world considers that uh, not beautiful. He knew this, but he was very careful to express it that way because he said, yes, that's what the world calls beautiful, but what happens is people invest unwisely in that the beautiful aspect of that object or that person or that situation. And so he is, he is able to see these things. He's able to see the fault, the ugliness of the world, and he's also able to see the beauty of the world, but he's able to see this with wisdom. And so this is very important. And this has to be processed again and again. It's very easy when you start uh, doing your meditations and hearing about Buddhism. It's very to think that everything, somehow you should never taste anything good again. It's neither good, doesn't taste good or bad, etc. So these things remain, the, the, these, uh, your relationship, uh, your ability to appreciate or, or see these things remain. But it's your, it's your emotional relationship to these things that changes. So this is, uh, this is how these, these five hindrances work. And you need to really practice a lot with this. Uh, the idea of the accompanying feeling of anger, the accompanying feeling of greed. By the way, so greed is uh, accompanied by joy sometimes. And if... For instance, you have made a commitment not to eat ice cream because you're on a diet, but it's 9 o'clock and you just saw something on television that had ice cream in it, and then you think, there is ice cream in the fridge. I, uh, right, I'm not supposed to, but I'm going to override that determination. I am going to the fridge now. Each step, I have a smile on my face. I am. I eat every spoon. I take the ice cream out and I eat it, and every spoon I... I enjoy. Afterwards, I think, uh-oh, what did I do? I just broke my diet. Why did I do that? You might, so you might have an accompanying sense of guilt or remorse about it, but you had joy uh, in the taste and in the anticipation of the experience. So, or you could actually have a kind of a swing back and forth between this desire for the taste and uh, despair at your inability to stay on a diet. So desire comes up with pleasant feelings sometimes, uh, negative feelings sometimes, and uh, kind of swinging back and forth between them. So this is something to, to know and rehearse again and again, to observe it, uh, so that you're not just taking my word for it or the Buddha's word for it. You're, you see it in your own direct uh, psychological experiment. This is just a little experiment. This is Pavlov's dog's. You can run the experiment on yourself so you don't have to take anybody else's word for it. This is what, the Dhamma, what they mean by the Dhamma is directly visible here and now. Dhamma is directly visible here and now by you, not by secondary sources. 
It begins, though, by hearing it from somebody else. And then you think, let me just check that out. And by the way, the Buddha invites you to, to uh, really uh, put these things under scrutiny. He says, if this, he calls Dhamma is like gold. Gold, is, uh, and in the time of the Buddha, uh, currency was traded in gold. But uh, there was all these nefarious people who wanted to, you know, coat lead with gold and so forth. And so you never knew whether... So they had tests, and you, you gold, you, you burned it, and you cut it, and etc. And the more you do that, the more it shines. So he says, this, these teachings are like gold. Go ahead, test it. See if, they're act- if it's real. Uh, cut it, burn it, test it. And the more you test it, the more it shines. You will, you, there's no, it's, it's not like some people will benefit by the absence of the diminishment of anger or greed, and others won't. It, it doesn't work that way. All will benefit from that, these diminishments. Because they allow the mind, the universal nature of the mind, to come back and to to lighten up and to be luminous and free. And so this is the Buddha saying, this is a kind of a repressed and, and uh, defiled by these unskillful attitudes to reality. The mind is, why you feel like you do is because you're uh, in a constant state of somewhat, some abusing your own mind, abusing the nature of the mind. And of course this thing is, struggling all the time because you are ladening it with, uh, with these unskillful uh, emotions and thoughts and so forth. What happens if you stop doing that? The mind uh, deeply appreciates it and comes back and it just shines. So it's like water. Water is intrinsically just H2O, so it's, it's pure in its nature. But all kinds of things are mixed into it. Uh, mud and impurities are mixed into it, but that's not the nature of water. It's not intrinsically that. Uh, if those things are not mixed into it, then the mud settles to the bottom and the water purifies. So the, the mind is like that. It's like water. The Buddha gives this simile of water many times. The mind is like water. It's intrinsically pure, but... Things are added to it and uh, distort the, the nature of the mind. So uh, now you see this uh, even with uh, very young... So it's not a matter of sophisticated thoughts or philosophies. Uh, if, even with babies, uh, if, they're not be, if they're not uncomfortable, they, the mind comes back, you see this kind of lightness, this shining happiness. Puppies, everything, the intrinsic nature of mind. So this is... This mind thing is not personal. It, it sums, it's, it's a universal quality, consciousness, and it pervades the, the living universe and in dif- different degrees of sophistication. But some of its basic natures are, nature is it's like water. It, it has a, a purity accompanied by joy and ease and serenity. But... Uh, there are these other elements that have arisen, greed, hatred, delusion, which cause distress, stress or suffering in this mind.
So this is something very important to keep in, in mind, is that this, the Buddha knows more about how your mind works than you do, way more about how. You, you, it's not your little thing, because you don't know how it works, and you didn't make it. It's a universal process, and it works by universal laws, and if you, if you adjust and see these things, then uh, ease will arise. How will you know that you're on the right track? Class? Anybody? <laughs> You'll feel better. That's why. You will feel better. And this is, uh, it all comes down to feeling. There wouldn't be any talk about suffering and the end of suffering if you didn't feel better. Uh, it's not about clarity of thought or anything. Clarity of thought is nice. It's only an assistant to how do you feel. So your, your, your heart, your, your core being, is what the Buddha is talking about. Buddhism addresses that. It's interested in that. What is the experience of being alive? What is it? How, how do you feel? And if you're burdened, harassed, diminished, uh, all of these things are, it's a very great misfortune that you, you are experiencing that when it's unnecessary. So the Buddha is saying, out of compassion, you are suffering, and I, I, I'm offering you a way out. This works. It works for uh, anybody with a mind. And so this is the, the nature of these things. But you have to kind of understand these things and, and apply these things, and then you will get the result. And the Buddha says, go ahead, test it any way you want, because it, it just works. That's all it does. But if you don't do it, of course it doesn't work. And it's not by uh, thinking the Buddha is my teacher or uh, I have done so many bows to the Buddha. It, that does, that's not how it works. You don't get to join a club. It, it's not by joining a club. Uh, you can't join a society. You can't be a member of a group and get your suffering uh, undone. It's by following these processes understanding these processes and applying these. And they're not... It doesn't require, you know, high IQ. It's just something that is present and, and obvious to you. Even children can understand this. So this is... I've just touched on basically the, uh, the first two of the five hindrances. And uh, perhaps you can see why I'm compressing this last section of the... Because we have one more talk left. Um, and, and, and I'm going to skip over all of those other... The six, this, and the, the five khandhas and so forth. I'm just going to talk a little more about the hindrances and then seven factors uh, of enlightenment. And these are the, 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 the critical elements of the sutta. The other things, the six sense bases and their objects... And the five khandhas, five khandhas particularly, are very, very, it's a very, very important teaching. And could, you could dwell on that for a, a whole retreat. Part of that, part of the five hindrances, uh, five khandhas, the five elements of a human, so the, the body, perceptions, feelings, uh, consciousness, and volition, much of this has already been talked about in the 
four foundations of mindfulness. So we've talked about the body. That's the first kanda. That's the first of the four foundations of mindfulness. We talked about feelings, uh, which are the second category of the four foundations of mindfulness. And we also talked about volitions and perceptions, uh, because part of the feelings are that there's psychologically uh, derived feelings and there's physically derived feelings. The psychologically derived feelings are volitions. And then we, I also specifically talked about perception in, a, in about two, two or three talks ago. Perception, uh, changing, having, learning to have some control over this. So, and in fact, I've just been talking about it. Seeing an object uh, as, as repulsive or not. And when we looked at the body, so we could see some people see the body as, as beautiful or repulsive, and that you're attempting by reflecting on this to change your perceptions of the body, perceptions of the body. And then consciousness, where does that come up? Consciousness, I keep mentioning this fellow, this, this king at the center of the, in the walled city, the sati is looking down on the, on the gateway, and samatha and vipassana, the messengers are coming and being admitted. Where are they going? They're going to the king at the center of the city. And who is the king at the center of the city? Consciousness. It is the restructuring and reinforming of consciousness. And that will determine the, the things the king decides to do. Whether to go, if, if, the, if wrong, the wrong messengers come in and say, the next kingdom over has a whole lot of treasure and the army's really weak. The king will think, maybe I should go and take over that kingdom. So this wrong information, the, the sentry has admitted the wrong people, but if he, it admits uh, samatha vipassana, the message will be, <clears throat> O great king, the uh, kingdom is just as it was yesterday and will be tomorrow. It's impermanent, unsatisfactory, and insubstantial. The king then doesn't really want to go and take it over because it's impermanent, unsubstantial, and uh, unsatisfactory. So that's the information process. Getting the right information about reality changes all your motivations, and all your motivations come out of consciousness. So... We just did, in three minutes, we took the five khandas all apart and why they're important, but they're kind of included in the four foundations of mindfulness. So, um, I will continue this talk tomorrow. Maybe I'll talk a little more about the last three of the five hindrances, and I will try to get to the seven factors of awakening as well in that talk because that will be the last talk of this series. If you do want more information about this, uh, you will find many more talks by me on the seven factors of awakening.